100 years since Gallipoli. New Zealand remembers. A documentary special on News Talk ZB. Gallipoli, August of 1915. For four long months, the Anzac soldiers had endured harsh conditions. Terrible food, immense heat, and limited water had led to poor hygiene. Primitive latrines and the rotting corpses of fallen comrades in no man's land soon brought the flies, which spread dysentery to 80% of the troops. Ottoman snipers had picked off hundreds of soldiers from the ridges above them. The heights that the Anzacs had failed to take on the day of the landings, back in April, still loomed menacingly above them. Those Australian and New Zealand forces had recently been joined by the Maori contingent. Here's Dr Monty Sutar of Massey University. The contingent had been a month on Gallipoli at that point, and remembering that a lot of the New Zealanders had, had arrived there on Anzac Day back in April, the Māori contingent came as, uh, as a blessing to our New Zealand troops because they were a lot healthier and fitter because they hadn't been on Gallipoli. And so when it came to um, widening the, the big sap and the um, communication trenches, they were applauded for their work ethic. And it has to be remembered too that Māori were out to prove themselves. So it didn't matter what job you gave them, they were going to be the best at it. And uh, after a month of being on Gallipoli, you know, everybody everybody knew that. Uh, and as I was talking about their physiques and their um, their strength and things like that, it was untested and uh, August was the opportunity to see, did they actually have the goods? The British general in charge of the Gallipoli campaign, Sir Ian Hamilton, had developed a plan to bring an end to the stalemate at Anzac Cove. Senior war historian Dr Damien Fenton explains. The August offensive, or the, or the Surrey Bear offensive, is really Hamilton's last, last throw of the dice, and he, he throws everything into it. It's an all-out attack by the entire Mediterranean Expeditionary Force. The focal point of it is going to be an attack out of Anzac, led by New Zealand assault column, uh, one of Gurkhas, another one of Australians, and their job is going to be to seize three key heights on the Surrey Bear Range, Hill Q, Hill 971, and Chunuk Bear, this was the high ground that they were supposed to take on the first day. In and of itself, it won't win them outright victory, but it will set them up for yet another offensive later on down the track where they will be in a position to finally cut across to the Narrows and, and, and win victory. But in the, the first thing they need to do is get that high ground. And so the focal point is this attack out of Anzac up into the Surrey Bear Range to give it the best chance of working. Hamilton also orders that the British and French troops down at Cape Hallis will make uh, diversionary attacks to try and draw off Ottoman troops and reserves. Similar job is given to the Australians at the southern end of Anzac perimeter. The Australian division is given the job of attacking uh, an Ottoman strong point called Lone Pine. The idea is that this will suck in Ottoman soldiers and reserves away from being used at Surrey Bear. And also, with a similar point in mind on, on one level, there's also going to be a landing at a place called Sivla Bay, which is about seven kilometres north of, of Anzac. Big wide open bay opens up into a very flat plain and there's going to be a new landing carried out there on the night of the offensive by four British divisions, which will land there and first of all enlarge, um, link up with the Anzac area and, and make that a much bigger area. But also hopefully if the New Zealanders and Australians and Gurkhas have taken Surrey Bear, the British will also push on and, and take the high ground in front of them. On the day of the landing, April 25, the Anzacs had underestimated the fierceness of their foe. By the beginning of August, they were well aware of the threat that Ottoman troops posed as they prepared for a desperate night assault. 
Lest We Forget. It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB. The success or failure of the Gallipoli campaign was to be determined by a last-ditch offensive to take the high ground in early August. So the offensive begins on the evening of the 6th of August. You know, a series of attacks. Um, the, the Australians attack Lone Pine. They actually take it, and then they hold it for the next week in the face of furious Ottoman counterattacks. It's a horrendous battle that goes on for the whole five days or so of the offensive. And the Australians actually win seven VCs in the fighting at Lone Pine, seven Victoria Crosses. They lose about 2,000, 2,500 men, though. It's incredibly brutal fighting. And one of those VCs is actually won by a New Zealander serving in the Australian forces, a guy called Alfred Shout, who'd actually fought in the South African War as a New Zealand soldier, um, but then moved to Australia in about 1907. And he's awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross for his bravery in, in the attack on Lone Pine. So there's the Australian diversion going in, and to that extent it seems to work. I mean, it's, it's certainly intense fighting going on there. The, the diversionary attacks at Cape Hells take place, don't really achieve much other than causing you know, a large number of casualties amongst the British and French troops that take part. The landings at Suvla begin that night, but quickly becomes a shambles. Again, similar story to the original landings at Anzac and Cape Hellas. The units get confused, uh, they get lost, they basically lose the initiative and opportunities to, to take the high ground in front of them aren't taken and, and so on. Um, so Suvla is a bit of a dead loss, but the crux of the attack, the attack which is really going to make or break this offensive, is the attack out of the north of Anzac to take these three key points on the Surrey-Bear range. And on the first night, uh, the New Zealand Mounted Rifles with uh, Māori contingent guys attached, they clear the approaches towards the heights and they succeed in doing their job. They take about six key hills, but... In doing so, they, they fall behind. And one of the problems with this whole offensive is that it's too complicated. There's too much going on and too much that has to happen at exactly the right moment for everything to work. It's too complicated, basically. And the mounted rifles, immediately the offensive is in trouble because by the end of the first night, even though they've taken all their objectives, they're about four hours, five hours behind schedule, which has implications for the New Zealand Infantry Brigade, which is coming up behind them. And they're the ones who are charged with actually pushing on and taking Chanuk Bear one of the three key high points. Even though they too were suffering from dysentery and dehydration, the Maori contingent were the freshest forces on the peninsula. So instead of being sent into battle as one unit, they were divided between the other New Zealand regiments. They were split up on the night of the 6th of August when the attack was made on the foothills below Chanuk Bear and assigned to each of the mounted rifle regiments. So you had a platoon roughly of 50 men, Maori, being given over to the Otago's another 50 attached to the Canterbury's. Actually, there was two platoons who went with the Wellingtons. Harry Brown was a 28-year-old trooper in the Wellington Mounted Rifles Regiment, originally from Fokatani in the Bay of Plenty. He recounted the memory of the Maori contingent's preparation for battle. As the sun was setting on Friday, 6th of August, they gathered around their native chaplain, chaplain in fighting array, and a brief service was held in their own tongue. To me, it was an historic scene. (laughs) 
After a few words, the hymn Jizu, Lover of My Soul, was sung in Maori to a tune of their own. My squadron stood round silent, listening intently. There was something pathetic about the tune and scene that brought tears to my eyes. And yet, as we listened, we felt that they, and we, could go through anything with that beautiful influence behind us. He was a very good sportsman. He had played for the Māori All Blacks. So he requested to go with them as uh, the chaplain for the unit. And uh, Wainuhu being a fit sportsman, healthy, they deemed him uh, the most suitable to go. And so he heads off with the Māori contingent overseas. And uh, he was great for them because he had a reputation for going up with them into the front line. Uh, and which the Māori soldier appreciated. And you've got to remember, in, in that period, um, all Māori were brought up with a Christian upbringing. And uh, despite the, you know, the denomination, they all believed in the, the one God. And uh, for their own spiritual sustenance, they needed the minister to be there. And Wainuhu was that man. With the sun setting, and the voices of the Maori contingent still echoing in their ears, the exhausted men prepared once more for battle. Commemorating 100 years of the Anzac spirit with Leighton Smith on Newstalk ZB. Under the cover of darkness on the 6th of August 1915, New Zealand forces advanced up the ridge toward the enemy stronghold. The haka was used that night, and uh, it was a silent attack, supposed to be, and you're not allowed to have a round in the, uh, up the spout or in your magazine. So it was just a bayonet, and all New Zealand troops had to adhere to this so that if you're going to charge a trench, you're not going to be firing any shots. The Turks could fire at you, but you couldn't fire back. You just had to get in there and clear it with the bayonet. And so the Māori, in preparation for this, uh, started... Hakakamate on one of the ridges leading to Chanuk Bear. And all accounts were that the Turkish had never really heard anything like this before. And I mean, you think about it, it's dark and you've got these guys screaming something that you've never heard before and then they're charging at you. Is it any wonder that the Māoris, when they jumped into the trench, there were no Turks in it? They had um, just done a runner, headed back up the hill. One Māori platoon heard, uh, heard that haka coming from the ridge and they were on another ridge and so they started the haka up. And the record says that you could tell how far the New Zealanders were going by the hakas that were working their way up the ridge. The New Zealand soldiers would come in with three cheers and they'd jump in on the haka as well. But the fighting was brutal that night. As I say, it was hand-to-hand with the bayonet and, and rifle and there are accounts of Māori and, and Pākehā New Zealanders in there, I guess, dealing it to the enemy, uh, even to the fact of, you know, using rocks to to smash heads 
uh, it got it got very brutal. Close, fierce, and primal. It was a kind of warfare that the Kiwi soldiers could never have imagined when they volunteered back home in New Zealand. See, the army doesn't train you for for that sort of fighting. It can teach you so much, but this was instinctive stuff that I, I guess you know, their forefathers were only two generations away from the land wars. It was in them, uh, and they had this high expectation that they had to live up to the reputations of their ancestors, and they fought in that way. And as a result, uh, that was the really the major success of the August Offensive was that night on August the 6th when they took the foothills and cleared the way for the infantry battalions to move up to Chanuk Bear. The Wellington Battalion was ordered forward to take Chanuk Bear in the daylight of August 7. An order Lieutenant Colonel William Malone viewed as a suicide mission. Lest we forget. Every Thursday until Anzac Day. We remember. A special broadcast on Newstalk ZB. Oh, it's not the that you carry on your By the morning of August 7, the Wellington Battalion had secured the apex of the ridge leading up to the main heights. They dug in. When ordered to mount the assault on Chanuk Bear, the 56-year-old commander of the Wellington Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel William Malone, refused to advance during daylight. Upon Malone's insistence that he would not send his men over to commit suicide, Major General Alexander Godley eventually agreed to postpone the attack until nightfall. With the Auckland Battalion securing the slope ahead of them throughout the night of August 7 and the morning of the 8th, Malone's Wellington Battalion was to make the final push to take Chanuk Bear at 4am. Malone, uh, there's no other word for it really, Malone is a real hard-ass. He's, he's a fierce disciplinarian, he's, he's a stickler for the rules, there's none of this nonsense about not saluting and all this sort of thing uh, in Malone's battalion. He expects high standards in everybody, his men, but also his superior officers and his fellow officers. He's an Irishman from Taranaki, heavily involved in pre-war militia and territorials. By the time they get to Gallipoli, he feels that he's got the best battalion in the NZDF, but that's because he's in charge of it, and he's, he's the one who's knocked them into shape. After giving the company commanders the necessary orders... Malone returned to brigade headquarters to secure a supply of water and ammunition before his battalion moved out. He had foreseen his troops fighting in the scorching heat after the sun rose and was anxious to make sure they were as equipped as they could be. At 3.30am, Malone roused his war-weary troops and at four o'clock the Wellington battalion advanced up the ridge. Bracing themselves for the enemy to open fire, The peak was eerily silent as they made their way up and over the crest. The troops were surprised to find the enemy trenches unoccupied. During the night, the Ottomans had pulled out of Chanuk Bear. They take it and then they they hold it for two days in the face of massive Ottoman counterattacks with Kamal Ataturk himself, Mustafa Kamal, taking personal command of the counterattacks at Chanuk Bear. The Turks are desperate to get this high point back. They realise its importance as well. It's an epic battle. I would argue it's probably the most epic battle fought in the history of the New Zealand Defence Forces. The Wellington Battalion has a strength of about 700 men when it goes up to Chanuk Bear. Two days later, when the survivors are relieved, uh, there's only about 70 Wellington men that walk off that high ground unaided. The Wellington Battalion is effectively wiped out, and uh, Colonel Malone himself is killed. It's not entirely clear. Some people say he was killed by a British naval shell. Others say he was killed by Turkish artillery fire. On one level, it doesn't really matter. The point was he was killed, but his battalion fights on. 
pretty much every other New Zealand battalions and, and the mounted rifles also end up being sent in as reinforcements along with soldiers from the Māori contingent and they all suffer horrendous casualties but the point is, is that we hold it, we take this place, we hold it, we hold it for two days, we do everything that's asked of us. Sir Ian Hamilton later wrote of Lieutenant Colonel William Malone and Colonel Arthur Beauchamp, commanding officer of the Otago Mounted Rifles, who was also killed on the same day, I lay a very special stress on the deeds of Beauchamp and Malone. These two heroes were killed whilst leading their men with absolute contempt of danger. Beauchamp, after having captured what was afterwards known as Beauchamp's Hill, and Malone on the very summit of Chanuk Bear. Both Beauchamp and Malone were soldiers of great mark and, above all, fearless leaders of men. Where so many, living longer, have achieved distinction, it is quite necessary that New Zealand should bear the names of these two gallant soldiers in tender remembrance. The sacrifice and courage of the New Zealanders at Chanuk Bear made history, but even history-making courage was not enough. Honouring those who made the ultimate sacrifice with Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB. Dear Katie, when leaving home, you asked me to keep a diary. I used to jot down some of the main incidents during my time on the peninsula and am now sending you a copy which may prove interesting or otherwise. Friday, 6th of August. Lay hidden in the gully all day. We'll move at dark. Very busy sewing white patches to our coat sleeves and back. These are to be our distinguishing marks in case we get mixed in the fight in the dark. As I write this, my thoughts are divided. Will the advance be a success? And will I come through all right? We got moving at 9.30pm and came right round the beach, about a mile, and then turned up a gully held by the enemy. At the same time, the NZMR and Māori stormed the Turks' trenches. We could hear the wild yells, probably Māori, as they took trench after trench, Met with very little resistance, the enemy falling back or surrendering as we advanced. Saturday, 7th of August. We rushed the trenches, over one ridge, down the gully and up the other side. These blooming Turks stood head and shoulders out of their trenches and let us have it with machine gun and rifle all away until we got within striking distance. Some of our fellows managed to get some of them with the bayonet as they scrambled out of the back of the trench, but my luck was out. Water was very scarce, and what little we had was given to the wounded. Sunday, 8th of August. We tried a new route today, down a gully to the left, and then up a dry watercourse in the direction of the trenches, but it was no good. The Turks saw our move and whooped a machine gun onto us with the result of three more killed. So here we are, lying hidden in the scrub, and won't be able to get out again until dark. Monday, 9th of August. At dawn, the Turks opened on us, the heaviest fire that I have yet heard, and under cover of this, they came out of their trenches in their thousands. They didn't get far, though, for the ships got their range and landed high explosives amongst them. It literally wiped them out in hundreds. We were just getting the Turks on the run when a bullet got me in the thigh, and I went down like a log. I managed to get my equipment off and drag myself down the hill. I hadn't got more than 50 yards when a shell fragment tore a lump out of my arm. I got into a bit of a gully, however, and must have been there about an hour, when a monster fusilier, with some of his finger blown off, happened to come my way. With his assistance, I got into the dressing station, about a quarter mile back, 
where they fixed me up and sent me down to the beach on a stretcher. Wednesday, 11th of August. So many men to deal with that they can't get us onto the ships. The enemy is also shelling the beach, preventing the lighters from coming in. We laid there until 11pm and were then towed out to the hospital ship. That cross of red on the side of the ship was a welcome sight. So ended my trials and troubles on the peninsula. After two days of fighting for the high ground of Chanuk Bear, of the 700 men from the Wellington Battalion, only 70 were still standing. The only member of the Maori contingent at Gallipoli who was awarded a Distinguished Conduct Medal for his actions in the August offensive was Private To Paranihi from Taumaranui. He was actually witnessed jumping into a, a trench in one of their attacks where he was faced with uh, five Turkish. And the other thing the Māoris say, by the way, is that when they, they came across the Turkish for the first time, the Polynesian build was a much bigger build than the... Um, see, Turkish weren't just Turks, they were the Arabs as well. They were a smaller build than the Māoris, so they had an advantage when it came to this close quarter fighting, they were saying. And uh, he was cornered by five of them, uh, who had um, their rifles and bayonets, and uh, he gets to the DCM because he was able to defeat all five, and uh, he killed four of them and brought the fifth one in as a prisoner, who basically put his hands up after this mighty guy was seemed to be, um, you know, an impossible odds. But he he put them all down one at a time using his fists and uh, his rifle and uh, as a club. Doctor Peter Buck, also known as Terangi Hiroa had served as a member of the New Zealand Parliament and played an active role in establishing the Maori contingent. He volunteered himself to be the contingent's medical officer at Gallipoli and later wrote of the condition of the men who fought at Chanuk Bear. You know, he's trying to describe the commitment these soldiers had made that night. He came across one of them after the fighting that night, sitting there uh, in the dark with no trousers on. And he grabbed a spare pair off a Turk body and he went to the private and he said, here's a pair of trousers to put on. And he said, no, sir, I've dysentery so bad that I couldn't get my pants off in, in time because of the dysentery. He said, so I figured it was better just to go go into the attack without pants on. And he said, no, I'll continue this way because he's still got dysentery. And Buck makes the comment, men who should have been in hospital were the ones uh, attacking that night because of you know, commitment to mates more than anything. Uh, they didn't want to let their mates down. Disease decimated the New Zealand soldiers, but so determined were they to hold their ground that if a soldier had the strength to lift his rifle, he was considered fit to fight. The Anzac forces held on, grimly, and against terrible odds. Lest we forget... It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB. The bravery of the Anzacs was not a suicidal charge towards certain death, nor was it, for most, an unthinking dedication to lofty ideals. Far from it. Anzac courage grew from a sense of solidarity with the man beside them on the front line and a willingness to sacrifice on his behalf. Private Rafferty, an East Coast man, was to receive the military medal for bravery following his selfless deeds. While they were lying there on the, the morning of the, the 9th, 
in the shallow trenches that they were able to dig for themselves, and they were alongside the Gurkhas. The British um, reinforcements were coming up uh, to assist them, and it happened to be the Royal Irish that came into their trenches. And uh, these guys were fresh, and uh, they were told to try and assault from where they were, Chanak Beer, get up and assist on the crest, where the Māoris had failed, by the way. And one of the Māori officers said to this, an Irish officer, he said, you're not going to do it, are you? Because uh, in his view it was suicide. And he said, I've been ordered to, and so we're going. And he said he watched this company of men leave their trench, go over the, the rise in front of them, and not one of them made it, and none returned. But they um, all moaned down on the flat in front of them, and... They said they were just watching all these uh, men writhing in agony, I guess, um, who just uh, were caught out there and nobody could bring them back. They just wiped out a whole uh, battalion, really. And uh, he said that one of these Māori privates, uh, Rafati, crawled out and started rescuing. Um, he'd put them on the, his back, make a run for it, back down in, into a, a gully, and he... He'd take a soldier down to where Dr. Buck was, leave him there, go back up. He just um, couldn't stand the fact that they were out there suffering, and he got to the 11th guy before he was shot in the back. He was wounded, and both of them um, were brought in as casualties. So he was awarded the military medal for bringing you know, these 11 Irish guys back, back down. Um, I'm sure they appreciated and probably owe their lives to, to that Māori soldier. The casualty rate was so high that most of the wounded were unable to be aided in returning to the beach. St. Patrick's Hospital, Malta, 28th August, 1915. Dear Mother, I'm doing very well at present and hope to be sent out to the convalescent camp early next week. One wound on my neck has completely healed up and both arm wounds are healing well. I'll try to give you an account of our last engagement as things are coming back to me again, but I'm still a bit hazy on some parts. On our first night attack, we were all going along with bayonets fixed, but no magazines charged, as all work was to be done as silently as possible, and to guard against our own men shooting one another in the dark. A machine gun opened on us from the right front, and we all got orders to double. I remember saying, Into it, stiffs! and ran slap into a Turk. He fired point-blank at me, but I knocked his rifle up and had him skewered before he could say a word. After that, I saw blood for a time and was slashing and stabbing everywhere. I remember turning round to see where Charlie was and found him with his bayonet against the Turk's chest and I shouted out to him to stick him! That night we had to stand to arms and were given no sleep. Next morning, we got orders to advance. Some of the valleys seemed to be full of dead and wounded, and the smell of human blood was simply sickening. We reached the top of Chanak Bear and found things very hot indeed. The scene was indescribable and I only have to close my eyes now to get it all back again. Dead and wounded were thick around and we had to shift them aside before we could get room to put a pick to the ground to dig in. The noise was simply awful. Men shouting and cheering, rifles banging, shells shrieking overhead and tearing the ground up all around. In the six hours that I was there, we were constantly being bombed, and we resisted six massed attacks. How many Turks I shot is hard to say, for I lost count in the end. 
When a solid mass of troops are rushing towards you with a hundred yards or less, one does not have to take much aim to hit. In the end, I had three rifles going, as the one got too hot for holding. Both Charlie and I got through until close on 1am, when a bomb blew us both up. Charlie got a fragment through the fleshy part of his nose and another in the left forearm. Being nearer, I got more, and in a few minutes was blood from head to foot. The wound in the neck bled the most, and I think I must have cut a vein, for I could not stop it with bandages. Several pieces hit my lower left arm, but only one stopped there and had to be operated on. One went right through my cheek, but healed up in a few days. Quite a number of wounded are being sent home to England, but I don't think that will be my luck unless I put in for it. Have had no news as to how the remainder of our squadron got on, and don't suppose I will until I join them again. Must close now, with heaps of love to you all, and hope you are all well. From Ernest. I've been there and it's about maybe two and a half kilometres from where these guys were, back down to the beach. And once you got wounded there, you know, for some it took them two days to crawl back down to the beach, um, which still wasn't safe. And, you know, my whole take on Gallipoli, given you know, the conditions they were there under, even today it's... You know, it's not an inviting place, but you add dysentery that they were suffering, the continuous shrapnel fire, machine gun fire, sniper fire. It must have been hell for the whole time that they were there. The survivors are relieved by British battalions on the 10th of August in the, in the wee hours of the 10th of August. And then these, these British battalions are hit by a massive counterattack ordered by Kamal. About 6,000 Ottoman soldiers smash into Chanakbeer that the British guys that have taken over. And, and they're just swept off it. They, they have no chance. They're completely overwhelmed. And uh, these Ottoman troops keep attacking, push all the way down Rhododendron Ridge and are only stopped at the apex by our machine guns lined up at the apex. But the end result is that after everything, the massive sacrifice, I mean, the offensive as a whole has cost the EMF about 30,000 casualties, 12,000 at Anzac. The New Zealand Infantry Brigade is effectively wiped out. And for all that, by the 10th of August, after five days of, of really incredibly savage fighting, the Ottoman Turks still hold the high ground, and so in that sense it's all been for nothing. With the failure of the August offensive, it came time to re-evaluate the Anzacs' chances of success on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Would they rally and attempt once more to secure the original objectives, or risk being slaughtered in a perilous evacuation with the enemy in pursuit? This Anzac centenary tribute has been made with help from New Zealand On Air. General Sir Ian Hamilton had sent thousands of Anzac soldiers to their deaths in the battles for Lone Pine and Chanak Bear. As the dust settled and it was clear that the offensive was a failure, the chances of the British winning the Gallipoli campaign looked increasingly remote. Bled white, the British began to consider the previously unthinkable evacuation. Hamilton sees it as a setback, but he doesn't see it as, as a decisive one. He still feels that if London will send him more troops and, and give him more resources, he could still win through. The problem is that just about nobody else agrees with this, and the consensus that emerges is that this was the last serious throw of the dice. After the failure of the August offensive, it finally prompts a very serious review of the whole campaign by the authorities back in London. The High Command in London had lost the Gallipoli campaign's key proponent, a young Winston Churchill, 
The man who had devised the original plan had been removed from his role as head of the Royal Navy following the public outcry at the disastrous landings in April. While the Gallipoli campaign is unfolding, obviously the war is still going on everywhere else, on the Western Front, on the Eastern Front, in Africa, and things change. And the strategic importance of Gallipoli is no longer what it was because of events in the Balkans, effectively next door. Not long after the August offensive in October 1915, Bulgaria decides to join the war on the side of the Central Powers, And this has huge implications, firstly because it means there'll be a a massive invasion of Serbia, which had managed to hold off the Austrians for two years, but its army is incredibly stretched. And when the Bulgarians enter the war, the Serbs are faced with a two-front war. It's too much, and their army has to give way. And Serbia is invaded and conquered in a matter of weeks. This means that the German and Austro-Hungarian empires through occupied Serbia and Bulgaria now have a direct link to the Ottoman Empire a direct rail link, a direct supply link. So they can send the Ottoman army all the ammunition that it needs, and just as importantly, they can replenish it with modern German weapons, modern German artillery pieces, German machine guns, German rifles, which the Ottomans have really been crying out for. If the Ottoman army had artillery on the scale and strength that the German army did on the Western Front, chances are they could have thrown us out of there in a week. So that changes everything as far as the authorities in London are concerned. And sure enough, actually, by November, the first uh, German heavy artillery and Austrian siege batteries arrive on the peninsula uh, with these big, huge, monstrous guns. And, you know, the writing is on the wall at that point. And so the Gallipoli chapter of the Great War was to come to an end. But one of the most difficult phases of the operation was yet to come. An amphibious evacuation would leave troops dangerously exposed to a violent and vengeful Ottoman force who would be determined to make their invaders pay for their incursion and pay in blood. Every man has to die But it's written in the stars In every 